brevity of the saints' sufferings in this world. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Psalm 35 And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16.20 For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 2 Corinthians 4.17 For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The reference here is to the person of the Lord Jesus, as is evident from Habakkuk 2.3, to which the Apostle here alludes. Like so many prophecies, that word of Habakkuk's was to receive a threefold fulfillment, a literal and initial one, a spiritual and continuous one, a final and complete one. The literal was the divine incarnation when the Son of God came here in flesh. The final will be His return in visible glory and power. The spiritual has reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, when that which most obstructed the manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth was destroyed. With the overthrow of the temple and its worship, official Judaism came to an end. The Christians in Palestine were being constantly persecuted by the Jews, but their conquest by Titus and their consequent dispersion put an end to this. That event was less than ten years distant when Paul wrote, Compare our remarks on See the Day Approaching, chapter 10, verse 25. We trust that none will conclude from what has been said that we regard verse 37 as containing no reference to the final coming of Christ. What we have sought to point out was the immediate purport of its contents unto the Hebrews. But it also contains a message for us, a message of hope and comfort. It is our privilege, too, to be waiting for God's Son from heaven. Let us add that it is a big mistake to regard every mention of the coming of Christ in the New Testament Scriptures as referring to His appearing the second time, Hebrews 9.28. In John 14.18 and 28, the reference was to Christ's coming by His Spirit. In John 14.23, to His coming in loving manifestation to the individual soul. In Ephesians 2.17, He came by the Gospel. In Revelation 2.5, his coming is in chastisement. Careful study of each verse is required in order to distinguish between these several aspects. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Verse 38. The first half of this verse is a quotation from Habakkuk 2.4 and its pertinency to the admonition which the Apostle was pressing upon the Hebrews is not difficult to perceive. The prophet is cited in proof that 
Perseverance is one of the distinguishing characteristics of a child of God. He who has been justified by God through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to his account lives by faith as the influencing principle of his life. Thus the apostle declared, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Galatians 2.20 The one whom God has exonerated from the curse and condemnation of the law is not him who has merely believed, but is the man who continues believing with all that that word includes and involves. Let the hearer fully note the force of the present perfect believeth in John 3.15, 16 and 18, 5.24 and so forth, and contrast the for a while believed of Luke 8.13. The use of the future tense shall live announces and enforces the necessity for the continued exercise of faith. It is true that one who has been justified by God was previously quickened, for we are justified by faith, Acts 13.39 and Romans 5.1 and so forth. And one who is dead in trespasses and sins cannot savingly believe. Note the called before justified in Romans 8.30. It is also true that the real Christian lives by faith, for that is the very nature of indwelling grace. But it is equally true that the just shall live by faith. The constant exercise of faith by the saint is as essential to his final salvation as it was to his initial salvation. Just as the soul can only be delivered from the wrath to come by repentance, self-judgment, and personal faith in the Lord Jesus, so we can only be delivered from the power of indwelling sin, from the temptations of Satan, from an enticing world which seeks to destroy us by a steady and persistent walking by faith. Patient endurance is a fruit of faith, yet it is only as that vital and root grace is in daily exercise that the Christian is enabled to stand firm amid the storms of life. Those whom God declares righteous in Christ are to pass their lives here, not in doubt and fear, but in the maintenance of a calm trust in and a joyful obedience to Him. Only as the heart is engaged with God and feeds upon His Word will the soul be invigorated and fitted to press onwards when everything outward seems to be against Him. It is by our faith being drawn out onto things above that we receive the needed strength which causes us to look away from the discouraging and distracting scene around us. As faith lives upon Christ, John six fifty six and 57, it draws virtue from Him as the branch derives sap from the root of the vine. 
Faith makes us resign ourselves and our affairs to Christ's disposing, cheerfully treading the path of duty and patiently waiting that issue which he will give. Faith is assured that our head knows far better than we do what is good and best. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. It seems to the writer that the translators of the American version took an unwarranted liberty with the word of God when they inserted in italics the words any man and changed and into but. The Holy Scriptures should never be altered to suit our ideas of evangelical truth. The revised version correctly gives, if he shrink back, and Baxter's interlinear, and if he draw back. Yes, if the just man himself were to draw back and continue in apostasy, he would finally perish. Albert Barnes said, By the solemn consideration, therefore, the Apostle urges on them the importance of perseverance and the guilt and danger of apostasy from the Christian faith. If such a case should occur, no matter what might have been the former condition, and no matter what love or zeal might have been evinced, yet such an apostasy would expose the individual to the certain wrath of God. His former love could not save him any more than the former obedience of the angels saved them from the horrors of eternal chains and darkness. Unquote. And if he draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Once more, the Apostle faithfully warns the Hebrews, Christians, and us of the dreadful consequences which would attend the continuance in a course of backsliding. He who thinks that by refusing to take up his cross daily and follow the example left by Christ can escape the world's reproach and persecution and yet go to heaven is fatally deluding himself. Said the Lord Jesus, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Matthew 16.25 That is, he who is so diligent in looking after his temporal prospects, worldly reputation, and personal comforts shall eternally lose his soul. It was to stir up the Hebrews unto the more diligent laboring after living the life of faith that the apostle here pointed out, the terrible alternative. Unless they maintained a steady trust in God and an obedient submission unto His revealed will, they were in grave danger of backsliding and apostatizing. If any should draw back, then God would have no pleasure in him, which is but the negative way of saying that he would be an object of abhorrence. But observe closely. It does not say God would have no more pleasure in him, 
which would conflict with the uniform teaching of the word concerning the unchanging love of God, Malachi 3.6, John 13.1, and Romans 8.35-39 toward his own. Oh, the minute accuracy of Holy Writ! The practical application of this solemn word to us is that in order to have a scripturally grounded assurance of God's taking pleasure in us, we must continue cleaving closely unto Him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Verse 39. The word perdition shows plainly that the drawing back of the previous verse is a fatal and final one. Nevertheless, so far is verse 38 from establishing the doom of any child of God, the Apostle assures the Hebrews that no such fate would overtake them. What is added here in this verse was to prevent their being unduly affrighted with the solemn warnings previously given and lest they should conclude that Paul thought evilly of them. Though he had warned, he did not regard them as treading the broad road to destruction. Instead, he was persuaded better things of them. Chapter 6, verse 9. John Calvin said, Let it be noticed that this truth belongs also to us. For we whom God has favored with the light of the gospel ought to acknowledge that we have been called in order that we may advance more and more in our obedience to God and strive constantly to draw nearer to Him. This is the real preservation of the soul, for by so doing we shall escape eternal perdition. Unquote. Again, Albert Barnes said, In this, the Apostle expresses the fullest conviction that none of those to whom he wrote would apostatize. The case which he had been describing was only a supposable case, not one which he believed would occur. He had only been stating what must happen if a sincere Christian should apostatize. But he did not mean to say that this would occur in regard to them. He made a statement of a general principle under the divine administration, and he designed that this should be a means of keeping them in the path of life. Unquote. Christians may grow cold, neglect the means of grace, backslide, fall into grievous sins as did David and Peter, but they shall not draw back unto perdition. No, they have been predestinated to be conformed unto the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 And God's purpose cannot fail. They are the objects of Christ's intercession. John 17.15 and 24 And that is efficacious. John 11.42 they are restored by the Good Shepherd when they go astray. Psalm 23, 3 
as the term perdition denoted that eternal damnation is the doom of apostates, so the word salvation here has reference to that ultimate consummation of the portion of all true believers. It is to be carefully noted that the apostle did not say them that have believed to the salvation of the soul, but them that believe to the saving of the soul. The difference is real and radical. There is a blessed sense in which every regenerated believer has been saved by Christ. Yet there is also another and most important sense in which his salvation is yet future. See Romans 13.11, 1 Peter 1.5 and 9. The complete and final salvation of the Christian is dependent upon his continued trust in and obedience to God in Christ, not as the cause thereof, yet as the indispensable means thereto. It is gloriously true that Christians are kept by the power of God. He who prepares heaven for them preserves them unto it. But by what instrument or means? The same verse tells us, through faith, 1 Peter 1.5, to depend upon an invisible God for a happiness that awaits us in an invisible world, when in the meantime he permits us to be harassed with all sorts of temptations, trials and troubles, requires faith, real faith, supernatural faith. Through faith alone can the heart be sustained till we obtain salvation. Nothing but a God-given and God-maintained faith can enable us to row against the stream of flesh and blood, and so deny its cravings that we shall win through to heaven at last. The flesh is for sparing and pampering the body, but faith is for the saving of the soul. Arthur Pink Continued in the August Studies Study number three the life of David, his fleeing from Saul. At the close of 1 Samuel 18, there is a very striking word recorded which supplies a most blessed line in the typical picture that was furnished by the man after God's own heart. There we read, David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. The marginal reading is still more suggestive, so that his name was precious. What a lovely foreshadowing was this of him whose name is as ointment poured forth. Song of Solomon 1.3 Yes, both to his father and to his people the name of Christ is much set by. He has obtained a more excellent name than angels bear. Hebrews 1.4 Yea, he has been given a name which is above every name. 
Philippians 2.9 Precious beyond description is that name unto his own. They plead it in prayer, John 14.13. They make it their strong tower, Proverbs 18.10. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. 1 Samuel 19.1 How vivid and how solemn is the contrast presented between the last sentence of the preceding chapter and the opening one of this. And yet, perhaps the spiritually minded would hardly expect anything else. When the name of the Beloved, for that is what David signifies, is much set by, we are prepared to see the immediate raging of the enemy, personified here by Saul. Yes, the picture here, presented to our view, is true to life. Nothing is more calculated to call into action the enmity of the serpent against the woman's seed than the extolling of his name with all that that scripturally includes. It was thus in the days of the apostles when they announced that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The Jewish leaders commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 18 And because they heeded not, the apostles were beaten and again commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. Acts 5.40 The previous plot of Saul upon David's life had failed. Instead of his being slain by the Philistines, they fell under the hand of David, and the consequence was that the son of Jesse became more esteemed than ever by the people. His name was had in high honor among them. Thus it was too with his antitype. The more the chief priests and Pharisees persecuted the Lord Jesus, the more the people sought after him. From that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, John 11, 53, 55, and 56. So it was after his ascension, the more his witnesses were persecuted, the more the gospel prospered. There seems little room for doubt that the death of Stephen was one of the things used by God to convict him who afterwards became the mighty apostle to the Gentiles. When the early church was assailed, we are told, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8.4 Thus does God make the wrath of man to praise him. Saul was growing desperate and now hesitated not to make known unto his own son his fierce hatred of David. Yet here again we may behold and admire the directing hand of providence in the king's not concealing his murderous designs from Jonathan. 
The son shared not his father's enmity. Accordingly, we read, But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art, and I will commune with my father of thee, and what I see, that I will tell thee. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. It is blessed to see such true and disinterested friendship. For it should not be forgotten that Jonathan was the natural heir to the throne. Here we see him faithfully acquainting David of his danger and counseling him to take precautionary measures against it. Not only did Jonathan warn his beloved friend of the evil intentions of his father, but he also entreated the king on his behalf. Beautiful is it to see him interceding before Saul, verses 4 and 5, at the imminent risk of bringing down his anger upon his own head. Jonathan reminded Saul that David had never wronged him. So far from it, he had delivered Israel from the Philistines and had thus saved the king's throne. Why then should he be so set upon shedding innocent blood? Jonathan must not here be regarded as a type of Christ. Rather is he a vivid contrast. Jonathan's plea was based upon David's personal merits. It is the very opposite in the case of the Christian's intercessor. Our great high priest appears before the king of the universe on behalf of his people, not on the ground of any good they have done, but solely on the ground of that perfect satisfaction or obedience which he offered to divine justice on their behalf. No merits of theirs can he plead, but his own perfect sacrifice prevails for them. Jonathan's intercession was successful. And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, verse 6. He not only gave his son a fair hearing, but was duly impressed by the arguments used, and was convicted for the present that he was wrong in seeking the life of David. Yet here again, the intercession of Jonathan and that of the Lord Jesus for his people are in striking contrast. The former had not but a temporary and transient effect upon his father, whereas that of our Advocate is eternally efficacious. Forever be his name praised. And Saul swear, As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. Verse 6 Once more we see how easy it is for wicked men to make use of pious expressions and appear to superficial observers, very godly men. The sequel shows of what little value is the solemn oath of a king and warns us to place no confidence in the engagements of earthly rulers. They who are acquainted with the scriptures 
are not surprised when even national and international treaties become only worthless scraps of paper. Reassured by Jonathan, David returned to Saul's household, verse 7, but not for long. A fresh war, probably local and on a small scale, broke out with the Philistines. This called for David to resume his military activities, which he did with great success. Verse 8, killing many of the enemy and putting the remainder to flight. A blessed example does the man after God's own heart here set us. Though serving a master that little appreciated his faithful efforts, nay, who had vilely mistreated him, our hero did not refuse to perform his present duty. Matthew Henry said, David continues his good services to his king and country. Though Saul had requited him evil for good, and even his usefulness was the very thing for which Saul envied him, yet he did not therefore retire in sullenness and decline public service. Those that are ill-paid for doing good, yet must not be weary of well-doing remembering what a bountiful benefactor our Heavenly Father is. Unquote. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand. Verse 9. The opening word of this verse seems to intimate that the fresh victory of David over the Philistines stirred up the spiteful jealousy of the king and thus by giving place to the devil, Ephesians 4.26 and 27 became susceptible again to the evil spirit. And David played with his hand, no doubt upon the heart. One who had been so successful upon the battlefield and was held in such honor by the people might have deemed such a service as beneath his dignity. But a gracious man considers no ministry too humble by which he may do good to another. Or he might have objected the danger he incurred the last time he performed this office for Saul, 1810, but he counted upon God to preserve him in the path of duty. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin. Verse 10. In view of his so recently acceding to his son's intercession and swearing that David should not be slain, our present verse furnishes an illustration of a solemn and searching principle, how often unsaved people, after sudden conviction, have resolved to break from their evil doings and serve the Lord but only after a short season to return to their course of sin like a washed sow to her wallowing in the mire, 2 Peter 2.22. Where there has been no miracle of mercy wrought within the heart, no change of disposition, and where there is no dependence upon divine grace for needed strength, resolutions, however sincere and earnest, seldom produce any lasting effect. 
Unmortified lusts quickly break through the most solemn vows. Where the fear of God does not possess the heart, fresh temptations soon arouse the dormant corruptions, and this gives Satan good opportunity to regain complete mastery over his victim. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Verse 10 How wonderful is the care of God for his own! Though invisible, how real are his protecting arms! Not a shaft of hate can hit till the God of love sees fit. What peace and stability it brings to the heart when faith realizes that the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Psalm 34, 7 Men may be filled with malice against us. Satan may rage and seek our destruction, but none can touch a hair of our heads without God's permission. The Lord Almighty is the shield and buckler, the rock and fortress of all those who put their trust in Him. Yet note that David was not foolhardy and reckless. Faith is not presumptuous. Though we are to trust Him, we are forbidden to tempt the Lord. Therefore it is our duty to retire when men seek our hurt. Compare Matthew 10.23 Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow shalt thou be slain. Verse 11 Saul was thoroughly aroused, chagrined by his personal failure to kill David. He now sent his guards to assassinate him. These were to surround his house and wait till daylight, rather than enter and run the risk of killing someone else, or allowing him to make his escape during the confusion and darkness. But man proposes and God disposes. The Lord had other services for David to perform, and the servant of God is immortal until the work allotted him has been done. This time the king's own daughter, who had married David, was the one to befriend him. In some way she had learned of her father's plan, so at once took measures to thwart it. First, she acquainted her husband of his imminent danger. Next, we are told, So Michael led David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Verse 12 In like manner, Rahab had let down the spies from her house in Jericho when the king's messengers were in quest of him. And as the disciples let down the apostle Paul at Damascus, to preserve him from the evil designs of the Jews. Though the doors were securely guarded, David thus escaped through a window and fled swiftly and safely away. It is of deep interest at this point 
to turn to the 59th Psalm, the heading of which inspired We Believe, tells us it was written when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. In his critical situation, David betook himself to prayer. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. Psalm 59, 1-3 Blessed is it to see that ere he completed the psalm, full assurance of deliverance was his. But I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. Verse 16. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Verses 13 to 14. Water will not rise above its own level. We cannot expect the children of this world to act according to heavenly principles. Alienated as they are from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18, utter strangers to him in experience. Ephesians 2.12 They have no trust in Him. In an emergency, they have no better recourse than to turn unto fleshly schemings and devisings. From a natural viewpoint, Michael's fidelity to her husband was commendable. But from a spiritual standpoint, her deceit and falsehood was reprehensible. The one who commits his cause and case unto the Lord, trusting also in him to bring to pass his own wise purpose and that which shall be for his own highest good, Psalm 37, 5, has no need to resort unto tricks and deceits. Does not David's having yoked himself to an unbeliever supply the key to his painful experiences in Saul's household? And Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may slay him. Verse 15 Bent on David's destruction, the king gave orders that, sick or no, he should be carried into his presence, and this for the specific purpose of slaying him by his own hand. Base and barbarous was it to thus triumph over one whom he thought was sick, and to vow the death of one that, for all he knew, was dying by the hand of nature. Spurred on by him who is a murderer from the beginning, John 8:44. The savage cruelty of Saul makes evident the extreme danger to which David was exposed, which in turn intensifies the blessedness of God's protection of him. How precious it is for the saint to know that the Lord places himself as the shield between him and his malicious foe. 
As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about His people from henceforth even forever. Psalm 125, verse 2. When the servants returned to and entered Michael's house, her plot was exposed and the flight of David discovered. Verse 16. Whereupon the king asked his daughter, Why hast thou deceived me so and sent away mine enemy that he is escaped? Verse 17. How thoroughly blurred is the vision of one who is filled with envy, anger, and hatred. He who had befriended Saul again and again was now regarded as an enemy. There is a solemn lesson for us in this. If pride, prejudice, or self-seeking rule our hearts, we shall regard those who are our wisest counselors and well-wishers as foes. Only when our eye be single is our whole body full of light. Solemn is it to note Michael's answer to Saul. He said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? Verse 17. Thereby representing David as a desperate man who would have slain her had she sought to block his escape. Still more solemn is it to find the man after God's own heart married to such a woman. Sir David fled and escaped and came to Samuel to Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naal. Verse 18 It was by Samuel he had been anointed and through him he had first received the promise of the kingdom. Probably David now sought God's prophet for the strengthening of his faith, for counsel as to what he should do, for comfort under his present troubles, for fellowship and prayer. It was through Samuel he was now most likely to learn the mind of the Lord. And to he probably regarded asylum with Samuel as the most secure place in which he could lodge. Naoth was close to Ramah, and there was a school of the prophets. If the Philistines gave no disturbance to the hill of God and the prophets in it, chapter 10, verse 5, it might be reasonably concluded that Saul would not. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Verses 19 and 20. Notwithstanding the sacredness of the place David was in, Saul sent servants to arrest him. But again, the Lord interposed by causing his spirit to fall upon Saul's messengers who were so much taken up with the religious exercises, they neglected the errand on which they had been sent. How this reminds us of the Pharisees and chief priests sending officers to apprehend Christ, but who, 
instead of executing their commission, returned to their master, saying, Never man spake like this man. John 7, 32, 45, and 46. Saul sent others of his servants a second and a third time to seize David, but with the same result as before. Verse 21. Saul now therefore went forth in person to seek and slay David. But before he reached the place where David was, the Spirit of God came upon him and threw him into a kind of trance in which he continued all day and night, giving David plenty of time to escape. Such strange methods does Jehovah sometimes employ in bringing to naught the efforts of his enemies against his servants. Arthur Pink Continued in the August Studies Today, with a taste of his love, Jehovah, their souls shall expand. Tomorrow, he'll give them to prove the Canaanites still in the land. Study number four, Prayer, part four, The Application. First, a word of information. As prayer is the duty of every one of the children of God and carried on by the Spirit of Christ in the soul, so every one that doth but offer to take upon him to pray to the Lord had need to be very wary and to go about that work, especially with the dread of God as well as with hopes of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.